You are now entering the Nintendo Power Zone. Now you're podcasting with power. Welcome to the Nintendo Power Zone. We are a video cast slash podcast dedicated to bringing you the best Nintendo related topics. I am your host, Nice1983. And I am your co host, Mario After Party. And guys, we've waited a long time to record this specific episode, but we believe the time is now. And today is our Legend of Zelda spoiler discussion. I've been dying to record this episode for weeks now. We've waited over two months to allow you guys to finish the game. And if you haven't beat the game by now, well, then I'm sorry. Maybe you should hold off on this episode until a time comes when you have completed the game. But don't worry. Once you have, this episode will be right here waiting for you. It's not going anywhere. But since this is a spoiler episode, we're going to talk in depth about everything we can in the game. But first, we've got to go ahead and talk about the Powered Up news. We only got one news story this month, but it's a pretty big one. And this is going to affect a lot of people, potentially. After party, hit him up. Alright, so the new story of the month is basically talking about how Nintendo may actually not be able to meet the demand for uh, manufacturing the Switch and through no fault of their own, but because of a uh, part shortage, worldwide part shortage for the NVIDIA and also for components that go into the Joy-Con. Um, the article, I'm going to read some of the excerpts from, uh, is from the Wall Street Journal. And it just says that uh, Nintendo's biggest battle these days isn't against other game makers. It's against companies such as Apple that are gobbling up the same parts Nintendo needs to make its hit Switch machine. Nintendo has told suppliers and assemblers it hopes to make nearly 20 million units of the Switch device in the year ending in March 2018. Uh, and this is from people involved in the discussions. Uh, though the company's official sales target for the year is 10 million strong, demand suggests it can sell many more if it can make them. So that number that Nintendo gave out officially of 10 million, which I thought was really low, I was like, man, this thing is going to sell like, you know, at least 15 million. I mean, you know, based on the, the, the current level of the demand, well, Nintendo. According to this article, which is not confirmed by Nintendo, but it is the Wall Street Journal, so I will give it some credibility, basically just saying that Nintendo um, is, is kind of secretly telling some of their suppliers, hey, look, we really want to make 20, but we're, we're just putting the official number at 10. And then the article continues the reason for that. The problem is an industry-wide capacity shortage for components used in smartphones, computer servers, and other digital devices. These include the NAND flash memory chips that store data, as well as liquid crystal, dis- liquid crystal displays, and the tiny motors that enable the Switch's handheld controllers to imitate the feel of an ice cube shaking in a glass. So, those are the parts that, that they're having difficulty getting. And um, I'm not going to read the whole article, but basically it just says that 
Um, analysts say rivals for the sought-after parts can often offer better terms than Nintendo. Uh, makers of data center servers tend to use newer and higher margin components while smartphone makers issue larger orders than Nintendo. So uh, it's going to be difficult for Nintendo to get these parts and because there is a worldwide shortage, um, it could pose basic, it, it, it could cause issues down the line. Um, that, the article does not say how bad the shortage is, so we don't really know how significantly it's going to affect Nintendo's actual projections, like within their company, not the official ones that they release. You know, we don't know if, if maybe this is going to be the difference between, like, them making 18 million switches or 20 million switches or if it's a really huge shortage and it's like yeah we really might only be able to make 10 million switches even though based on the current demand we could actually sell 20 million i mean that would be really terrible because it would kind of be the first time that nintendo's uh shortage was really not their fault but i mean it's it's a story that I'm going to kind of keep an eye on because I am just kind of waiting to see how this plays out to see how significant it really ends up being. Because it might not be a big deal, but I mean, you never know. I mean, nice one. You're, you're kind of like the video game historian here. You, um, there was a precedence for, for a, a component shortage. Yeah, so back in 1989, Nintendo and most of, you know, Silicon Valley was going through a global chip shortage. This is something that affected not just Nintendo because it, it reduced the amount of cartridges, it reduced the amount of cartridges they could make, but it hurt more the third-party developers um, because Nintendo could only fulfill X amount of the demand. And if the third-party developer actually, you know, asked Nintendo if they could find, you know, the the, the chips cheaper themselves then Nintendo would, would say, that's cool, but you have to meet the same standard of quality that we're delivering with our product. Now, this is a little bit different, but in a way, it's the same. Right now, we still have a lot of third-party developers in a holding pattern. They're still playing the wait-and-see game. And a lot of them are waiting to see if the Switch can sell. And right now, we're in a place where, yes, the Switch can sell. But, I mean, if there's not enough you know, units to accommodate the demand. I mean, this is like the worst case scenario with Amiibo and NES Classics, but this is the one time where it's directly out of Nintendo's control, but because, again, like I said, all these third-party developers are in that holding pattern, they might not want to commit to the Switch because, not because the Switch can't sell, but because Nintendo may not be able to, you know, commit to the actual demand of the unit. Right, but the last... Uh shortage of the chip shortage from decades ago was mo mostly affecting software so it didn't have anything to do with the amount of units that were shipped out it was the amount of software that could be sold for the units this time it's the units themselves so uh potentially i think that that might actually be an even more serious problem because not having the software is one thing, but there's a lot of there's a lot of different games to go around. If you can't find maybe the one that you want, 
but not being able to find a switch at all, uh, that would be pretty terrible if if the holiday season comes around and we're experiencing uh, shortages kind of on the same level of the uh, NES Classic. Yeah, and right now I'm, I'm actually in a state of impressed with Nintendo because I was out this morning. I saw Switches. I saw red and blue Switches. I saw the standard gray edition of the Switches. They have been able to accommodate a good portion of demand, not completely, you know, eliminate the demand. And that's, like I said, it's going to be a while before they can, you know, get 100% of the units they need to accommodate everyone. But they're doing a pretty good job of actually releasing Switches on a weekly basis. Now, it's like every Friday, a new shipment of Switches is coming out, which is really, really good for Nintendo. But we're in the summer months. Typically, Consoles don't come out in the summer or the spring like the Switch did. This this is kind of an anomaly as far as the launching timetable of a console. Most consoles come out during the holiday season where, you know, the, the company has had time to manufacture a crap ton of units, put them out in November, right before Black Friday, really drive up that demand, and then because they already have the back catalog of all those units, they can push them out to the public. Nintendo got a little ballsy by releasing a product in the beginning of the spring, and now they've got their work cut out for them because instead of building a catalog of, of, of Switches, what they have to do now is they have to just start accommodating. Yes, although, it, like I said, it's, it's really through no fault of their own because part of the problem is the demand for the Switch is is kind of through the roof right now, which not a lot of people expected. And there is a um, shortage of the parts needed to make it. So that's, you know, those things you can't predict. But um, oh, I will say, though, that uh, it is interesting uh, reading um, stories about how people are getting multiple Switches for their household. Because if this wasn't a portable console is for pro or xbox scorpio is it scorpio or scorpion scorpio scorpio yeah well, at least until e3 when they change the name right so so you would normally just buy one per household like you would, you'd buy one it'd sit in the living room and you would share it with you know either your kids or or whoever else lives in your household and that would be that but parents and, and i didn't really think about this which i'm sure a lot of people kind of did realize it, but I don't have kids, so, you know, I didn't think, oh, yeah, it, I mean, it's basically kind of like any other uh, handheld, like the 3DS, where you're not going to get one 3DS and make your, your kids share the 3DS, because it's portable, and you want each kid to have their own um, Switch, if, if you're going to get it for your kids, when you're on a car trip, and, and or when you're, when you're out and about, uh, so... It's probably driving up the demand even more by the fact that they're actually selling more than one of these per household. There's probably selling two or three to some households that that have um, you know kids or or maybe both parents are gamers and and that's something that I didn't consider either. So it's kind of a lot of um, crazy uh, you know 
variables and, and different factors all kind of combining for this perfect storm, which I really, really, really hope is not something that derails the switch um, as far as the hype and the momentum. Because, you know, right now we're, we're getting into um, almost the third month of the switch and, and that hype is still going strong. It's, it's had a kind of an abnormally long honeymoon. No, yeah, that's very true. I mean, just in my household, though, there are two Switches. And in total, I've bought three Switches. One for me, one for my fiancé, and one for you. The Okay, but I paid you back for that No, one. no, no, of course. No. But in my household, at one point, I did accommodate for three purchases. I, I actually set money aside in the instance that I found a Switch before you did. You know? That way... I could just pick it up and, you know, pass it on. But still, I mean, in my household, I needed two switches. One for me and one for my fiance because Splatoon. And that's a big game for us. But I needed, you know, two because there's going to be a, a bunch of games that I play that she has no interest in. And there's going to be games that she plays that I have no interest in. Uh, right now, we're it's a little, there's a lot, there's a lot of like, intersection between our gaming styles because she is playing Mario Kart with us which she's never done before so she's actually being introduced to new new games that she didn't find interest in previously but I still needed two switches to accommodate just for <clears throat> what was going to be happening in this household so I can see why people want that especially you're right the portable aspect of the switch drives the demand as far as who needs a unit like if you have two kids and they're roughly the same age you're and they're both going to want to switch then you have to buy two units although that is an expensive proposition man you buy two switches and a couple of pro controllers and a couple of games now for me like i said the switch for me it was like in total it was like a 500 dollar purchase after games and controllers and then another 70 bucks two weeks later when I found an additional set of Joy-Cons. That is true. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for the average person, if, if you get a Switch for $2.99 and, and, you know, let's say you buy um, Breath of the Wild and Mario Kart, which uh, is Mario Kart 60 bucks? I forget. Yeah. Yeah, so they're both 60 So that's two games. And then let's say you want a Pro Controller at... Um, 70 bucks 70 yeah um and that's not taking into account if you save money on amazon prime by getting these which you could get some of this stuff for cheaper than that but that is that would be um 489 dollars before taxes so you're basically to get a switch with the games and a, a pro controller it's it's gonna cost you about five hundred bucks. So yeah, if you get two of them, that's a that's a grand, and um, it is pretty expensive. But like I said, there are, there are people who are doing that, and um, there are people who are getting their kids, you know, a switch and getting one for themselves, and and uh, that's that's you know, I think it's pretty great that that the switch is is selling like that. Um, and that there's a lot of families out there that really want to share that gaming experience with their kids, but it is driving up the demand, 
even more than it that already would be if it had just been a portable or not portable if it had just been a home console the portability is like it's kind of driving the sales through the roof here oh yeah and we're just, this is a story we're just going to have to keep an eye on because right holidays i mean it's it's about to be june you know we're going to be at the halfway mark it's going to be interesting to see where Nintendo's at during the holidays and whether or not they're going to ha actually have a need for Super NES Classic Edition just to stave off some of the, the Switch hype. We will see. All right. So, guys, we're moving on to our next topic. We haven't done this in a while. What are we playing? Huh. It's time to bring it back. Yeah, it definitely is, because I've been definitely playing a lot of games. Uh, so, I've been very busy. So, I played A Link Between Worlds recently. Uh, it's my second playthrough of that game. and the, No, actually, it was my first playthrough of that game. I enjoyed it so much that I played it twice in one month, so I beat it twice. Uh, and, man, that game... I don't know how I slept on that game for so long, because it's brilliant. Uh, it offered a lot of the things that I felt like Breath of the Wild was missing. Things we're going to talk about, you know, in our spoiler discussion later on. But it was such a brilliantly designed game, and and it was a nice reason. It was nice to pick up my 3DS after like you know a couple months of neglect due to you know my Switch. But it was a really fun game. Outside of that, obviously we've been playing. I've been playing a crap ton of Mario Kart. I already have over a hundred hours. In Mario Kart, dock, you know, logged into my Switch, and uh, finally, I've been playing a game that is very near and dear to my heart. I have been playing a lot of Ultra Street Fighter 2, the final challenges, and I don't care what anybody says, man. I think the price tag was worth it. I have thoroughly enjoyed that game. I have had a crap ton of fun. I've played with you. I've played with my brother. I've played online. And, you know, I've gotten, I've had a lot of fun with the arcade mode. Uh, I, you know what? For as all the crap people talk about the way of the Hado, I actually did find a little bit of enjoyment with the way of the Hado. It's just that something a little bit fulfilling about actually being able to do a Hadouken. Uh, the other stuff doesn't work quite as well, like the Shoryuken or, you know, the Tatsumaki. But pulling off a Hadouken feels pretty good. I have enjoyed Street Fighter. It's it's such a classic game. It doesn't need all the bells and whistles. That game just works. We didn't need the bells and whistles back in 1992. We don't really need them now. Uh, that being said, though, yes, the price tag, I, I do think it is a little high, but, man, Street Fighter 2, we're not getting Street Fighter 5. Right, and if you like Street Fighter, it's worth it. I mean, I... I um. I was on the fence with this one, but I, I played it with Nice One last uh, weekend, and, um, you know, it, it's kind of similar in the case of Bomberman, where I felt that Bomberman was um, definitely worth it, uh, especially now that they've supported it with all the DLC, but I do feel like in, in the case of Bomberman, like $50 was a little expensive. I think 40 would have been more fair. Same thing here with Street Fighter. I think 40 is a little expensive. 30 probably would have been more fair. But at the end of the day, if you like Street Fighter, and it's been a while since you've played it, um, this is definitely going to scratch that itch, and Street Fighter is, is always a good buy. So. 
No, of course. And like I said, we're not getting Street Fighter Five, guys. PlayStation got that on lock. It's just a shame. I'd love to play Street Fighter Five on, you know, the Switch. But, man, for a guy like me who has spent his entire youth in arcades and just loves the fighting game genre as a whole, I needed this for my Switch. It wasn't, it wasn't really a question of whether or not I wanted it. Yes, I did want it. But I also needed it because with Street Fighter and really any kind of fighting game, you don't. Re there's really no value in having a fighting game that you play by yourself. That's never been the point of a fighting game. The point of a fighting game is to challenge somebody and compete against that person. That's where fighting games like add the human element to to them, and that's that's something you really just can't replicate. You the human element of a fighting game. Is the most important factor. You can build lifelong relationships based on fighting games. That person can be your enemy for life because <laughs> of Street Fighter 2. Or you could become best friends because you've learned from each other because of Street Fighter. I actually know people that I will never talk to because of Street Fighter 2. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, as, as important as it is to have a mechanically sound, graphically pretty fighting game... Fighting games have always uh, lived or died by the P2P interaction. You, you've got to have that interaction with another person because that is is the heart and soul of why people play fighting games is to play against other people. It's not a solo experience. No, man. Like, you can always learn a lot about a an individual by the way they play a game like Street Fighter. Like... A person like me who is aggressive and, you know, charges in and overwhelms his opponents. That's kind of like my personality in real life. I am aggressive. I am abrasive. I am in your face all the time. That, that The way I play that game is very reflective of the actual personality that I have. Whereas, you know, a person like my after party is more reserved. And he plays the game in a much more reserved way than I do. Like, he'll play... The distance game, and that's fine. I still, I still find a way to beat you, bro. That, that's not true with every character, though, because there's some characters where I, uh, I just hounded you. I... Oh, you're you're a troll. I'm not a troll. <laughs> you're an e Honda troll. That is a lie. Just because. So a nice one, and I, um, I, I don't want to get too much into just Street Fighter Two, but basically, um. I can brag about the fact that I beat him with like eight different characters, and he can brag about the fact that he perfected me twice, um, and we were just going back and forth, um, you know, with Street Fighter like for a couple hours, and just, you know, basically taking turns bodying each other, and uh, it was really fun. Dude, an hour and a half of like, let's just, let's just show, I was just going to show you the game, you know, and then it turned into like an hour and a half of like just trying it, and we still haven't done like all the modes that the game has to offer. We still haven't done, like, the buddy mode or any of that stuff because that's not where that game's heart and soul lies. You're absolutely right. It's about the P2P, you know, connect. the way you play that game should always be with a person. And it was it was really fun to just get in there and play some Street Fighter game. And you, it's, it's very easy to forget how goddamn good Street Fighter 2 is. It really is. And now they made some improvements to it, too. They, they sped it up. It's 1.3 times faster. Mm -hmm. Than you know it, it was on the Sega Genesis, which I like, which is slow still, 
in the grand scheme of where the Street Fighter series has gone, like you look at a game like Street Fighter Five, I don't know. I did you watch the Capcom Pro Tour this weekend? You saw how fast that game is by comparison. But it's they they've done a lot to to scale Street Fighter up, which is nice. It's a good game. I thought it was worth the forty dollars. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I was playing it right before we got on this show today. So, guys, it's got my recommendation. After party. What about you though, man? What have you been playing? Man, I'm so glad we brought this segment back because I remember during the Wii U days, it's like, what are you playing? And half the time it was like, oh, I'm still playing Splatoon. And next month, oh, I'm still playing Splatoon. Or oh, I'm not really playing anything right now. And in the first two and a half months since I've had the Switch, I've bought five games for it. So as of what I'm playing right now, I've been playing a lot of Mario Kart since I bought it. I uh, have not put in 100 hours like you have, but I've, I've played um, enough of it to, uh, to definitely unlock some of the, you know, I've unlocked the, uh, the golden cart, and uh, I beat, you know, the 150cc in, the, in mirror mode, um, and definitely got a lot of on- online time in. Uh, I've I've gone back and started playing some more Breath of the Wild recently, um, just to kind of finish a few uh, things in the game that that I just didn't get enough time to finish before some of these other Switch titles were released. And then I have been playing um, a little bit of Puyo Puyo Tetris, which. I downloaded um, actually digitally because it's only one gig, so it's a great digital download option. And um, of course, the Arms Test Fire, which we will actually have our uh, an episode dedicated to our first impressions of that game. So I'm not going to get too deep into the Arms Test Punch because um, we're going to wait until the Test Punch Part 2 next week when they unveil some of the new modes that we didn't get a chance to play in Test Punch Part 1. And uh, then we'll go ahead and give you our first impressions of that game. But those are, are the games that I have been playing. And it's, it's quite a few. And it's been a long time since I have had so many games on my palette. Definitely... Uh, it was not like this for the Wii U. Oh, no, man. We are currently in a state of being video game rich, as I like to call it. Uh, this is something other consoles get to experience. Like, as a PlayStation owner, when I bought my PlayStation, I finally had, like, this huge catalog of games that I could play, which I did. And, like, I plowed through them because I was a video game rich. But when it came to, you know, my Wii U, I definitely wasn't there. And damn, I completely forgot that I played ARMS all weekend because I've been playing more Street Fighter. No, but uh, yeah, ARMS was, the test fire was definitely interesting. It was, I don't want to get too deep into this real quick, but I do want to touch on it. It was very interesting to come off a game like Street Fighter and play a game like ARMS. Both games are very mechanically sound, but the variation in the control schemes really alters the way ARMS feels compared to your more traditional 2D fighter. It was something that I didn't actually account for when I initially decided to, you know, jump into the the test punch. And I was like, wow, these are very different experiences. But 
mechanically they both they both work um time will tell how i feel about arms in relation to other you know traditional you know fighting games but my initial impressions of them are good and like you said we are going to touch on that after the second test punch um because we were going to do it this week but we decided to hold off because they announced that there were going to be different modes in this next test punch so kind of want to do it all before we do our general discussion on that but man that's what we've been playing and it feels good to have this many games to play you're absolutely right being video game rich feels good because we're not you as nintendo fans it's been a long time since we can actually say we've been video game rich i think i honestly think the last time we were video game rich was when we got a mario kart game and a smash game in the same calendar year and that's technically across two consoles because we had mario kart 8 on the wii u then we had smash on the 3ds then a month later we had smash on the wii u so yeah Thank God that they've combined the consoles, because like, hopefully, from this point forward, things are going to get a lot more interconnected. Well, I mean, they already said that we're getting like uh, Fire Emblem Heroes is going to be a cross-platform game. Oh shit! Wait before we move on. Monster Hunter Double Cross for the Nintendo Switch. I let's just rewind back to the news section. I want to briefly touch on this because this is so interesting. Nintendo and Capcom are making a game that is cross-compatible with the 3DS version of the game. You can take your data from the 3DS, transfer it to the Switch, but if you have friends who might have the game on their 3DS and you only have it on your Switch, you can still play with each other. We are seeing a cross-connectivity between two unlike consoles and that, that is how Nintendo is going to be able to sustain both pieces of hardware in the, in the future. If people aren't ready to upgrade to the Switch, making games that are cross-compatible with both consoles, that is brilliant. When I saw that last week, I basically did a backflip because it's been a while since I played a Monster Hunter game, but I, I do have fond memories of that game, and I am excited because this is going to be the biggest, the baddest version of Monster Hunter for the Switch, so I'm excited. But, that's our news. That's what we're playing. And, guys, it's time that we go ahead and move on to our topic of the month. Our Breath of the Wild spoiler discussion. So, Breath of the Wild removes a lot of the Zelda baggage. Gone are the traditional dungeons, the Triforce fetch quest, the item-based dungeons, and a lot of the tedium that comes with the Zelda timeline. That's not to say those elements are bad, but Breath of the Wild strips them away to make way for new innovations, and we're going to go ahead and thoroughly discuss those today. Not only that, but for the first time in its 30-year history, a main series Zelda game adds voice acting to accentuate a story. A story that begins a hundred years ago as far as this game is concerned. So. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning of this game. So the way this game opens up is Link wakes up in a stasis chamber. He's told to open his eyes. Open his eyes. He needs to be the light of the world again. At this point, we should just go ahead and say it's our spoiler discussion. This is the voice of Princess Zelda. And something has happened. That Link is needed. 
but Link has been asleep for a hundred years. How did you feel about that, like, that hard opening to the game? Because it's not really a soft opening. Like, they pretty much just throw you into the world from that point. You get told to open your eyes, you put some pants on, and the game just starts. There's, I mean, there's technically a tutorial, but it doesn't even really feel like a tutorial. You're just kind of thrown out into the world. Like, you get pushed out of the nest by the mama bird, and it's all about what happens, what you, what, what choices you make from that point forward. So how did you feel about that hard open? I liked it. I would prefer hard, if that's what you the term you want to use, a hard opening, because um, I'm not... I've never actually beaten a Zelda game until this one. I played one for the Game Boy Color, and I played uh, Ocarina of Time on my 3DS, and uh, I got pretty far through those games um, enough to get close to the end, but I wouldn't consider myself like a big Zelda fan, and I felt like I didn't need a tutorial. I, I don't really even play Zelda games that much, and I prefer to learn while doing, just to learn on the go. I don't want to sit there through a tutorial um, and, and have to spend two or three hours, you know, having the game hold my hand, and this game didn't do that. It just let me learn on the go, and I prefer it when games do that. It, it, it does make them a little bit more difficult, but ultimately, it for me, it makes it more enjoyable. See, for me, it was, it was groundbreaking, because... Zelda games traditionally are handholdy, especially I mean, in the first like hour and a half. They teach you like every single mechanic. Uh, Twilight Princess especially takes a long time to get uh, to get going because they actually teach you basically everything you need to 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 get through this game. Actually, one of the first things you learn is how to catch and throw, you know, rams. And you need that, that actually, you don't even do it very often, but you actually need that to actually beat the game. That's how you beat Ganon, is you catch him and you kind of throw him off to the side. It's something that they teach you very early in the game, and it doesn't get used a lot. It gets used on, like, the Gorons, but it doesn't get used a lot outside of that. And it's very handheld. You just got to learn everything. This game just said, here you go. You have no weapons, though. So, man, for me, the first thing I literally did was, I, as soon as they allowed me to get into the Great Plateau, I just started running. And I found the old man, and I spoke to him. Obviously, we know that the old man is uh, King Roam. Uh, he kind of sends you, he kind of like lets you know that the world is in chaos, and he's like, but before you can do anything, you have to go ahead and get to the top of these really big towers. And it was very interesting to see how they pulled that off. And they just get, gave you free reign. Um, but that opening section in the Great Plateau, I was impressed by how much stuff is actually in, is in that section. Because the Great Plateau is actually pretty self-contained. But within the Great Plateau, you have like, all the basic elements of what's in the rest of the world. 
because you have your enemies. You have some shrines. You have the towers. But then you also have things like the guardians. Uh, and the first time I died was because I underestimated the power of the guardians. So I basically got my first rune, which was the for me the first rune I got was the bombs, and I thought they would be effective to use against the guardians. They they aren't. They they aren't. That guardian fucked me up so fast. He literally just shot me once, and I was like, oh, I only have three hearts. That was bad, and it was a because of that experience. It was a while before I actively started hunting guardians. After that, like a long while, because the game taught me to be respectful to certain elements. Like this game intentionally breaks you in the early goings. It lets you know right away you can't kill this, you can't kill this, you can't kill this, you can't jump from this height. It lets it breaks you. It literally sets out to break you. It, it teaches you to be respectful of the things that are in this world. And if you aren't respectful to those things, it will eat you alive. Uh, a couple things I want I want to point out also in the the Great Plateau is there's a couple of like iconic things in the Great Plateau, like the Temple of Time, but it's in fucking ruins. Like it's completely like destroyed um but it's it's like the temple of time that hardcore Legend of Zelda fans who played Ocarina of Time they're gonna recognize it and it was so brilliant to see there um I know there was something in the Great Plateau that out of all the people I spoke to who played this game I was the only person to find the uh the heavy jacket for the winter portion of you know the the snow portion of the Great Plateau and it's because I went and talked to the old man. I found the old man's like shack and he had like a cookbook or, or a diary there. And he's like, I wish I had remembered the ingredients. And then you basically go on a little fetch quest to find meats and fish for him so that you can cook this meal for him so that he'll give you his warm jacket. Uh, outside of that, though, those initial four towers that you have to find what I really and the shrines that that go with them. What I really liked about that was after that you pick your own path that's your tut your tutorial and it and it doesn't feel like a tutorial and it's like I said it's this great heart opening that I did not expect it was very much like go playing the first Legend of Zelda you meet the old man in that game and he tells you it's dangerous to go alone take this and he gives you a sword and then you're set off into that that classic world of the original Legend of Zelda I wasn't really expecting that, and they kept telling us that. They kept telling us that, but in the in the throes of my mind, I could not fathom Nintendo going that far back with its mentality, saying, "Hey, this is going to be this way. We're we're going to make it exactly the way that first game was. We're going to give you the the basic items that you need to kind of survive this world, and then it's your job to survive this world." Um, but man. What about you? How was your whole Great Plateau experience? Um, so, like I said, not not the most experienced Zelda player. Um, I actually, try, I think I made it harder than it needed to be because I didn't realize um, that you could use the little stone pots for cooking things. I just assumed that you would have to get 
um, like an actual pot to put over the flame, and because there are, you know, um, like ladles lying around and, and, you know, shields that say like pot shield. And I just thought you'd have to put all that stuff together, but you don't. And it, it was easier than I expected it to be. Um, so for me, I mean, the game, it, you do have to respect the open world. You have to respect the breath of the wild because those, um, those monsters and those guardians will, will eat you alive if you don't. And I remember on, in one of the shrines that's surrounded by guardians, I tried to kill one of those guardians so many times. And of course I'm using like a stupid little sword that probably only does like five damage. And, and I mean, I would, um, at this point in the game, I didn't know how to do any of the, uh, you know, it hadn't really been revealed in the game at the, at that point that you could do the the um, the dodges or the uh, perfect shields. So, without those mechanics, I would I would just run around the guardian so that he couldn't keep targeting me with his eye. He'd have to keep spinning, and then I would, you know, or and I would. Uh, I don't know. If, I think we had the bow. On the Great Plateau, so I would just shoot him in the eye, hit him with the sword, shoot him in the eye, hit him with the sword, and I would just keep hitting him until basically I was like breaking all my weapons, and I'm like, God, he won't die. And then, you know, of course, there's no room for error because you get okoed by these things, and I just kept dying, 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 and I'm like, okay, I, I guess you're not really supposed to try to kill these things right away, and I spent a lot of time after that running from some of these enemies that I just knew, like, there's no chance, you know, because you are going to die. And, um, but I, I love that about the game because it's, it doesn't hold your hand. It throws you out there in the world and you can instantly encounter things that you're not ready for. And, and that's part of the beauty of the game. But um, as far as the Great Plateau, is concerned it was a very good way to at least contain the part of the game that because they they have to teach you some things before they release you into the world you have to get the runes you have to um, learn some basic fundamentals of cooking um, how to use the environment to you know stay alive and it does a good job by giving you a pretty big area to learn that on because the Great Plateau is a is pretty decent sized just by itself and it's only a fraction of the the whole world less than one percent of the game is Great Plateau but you know if, if this was a game that came out back you know on like the PS1 or something you could have a whole world just on that that size alone uh, back in the day it's it's a pretty big plateau and they and they do a good job of letting you learn the fundamentals um before giving you the paraglider and then you really are on your own and then you really do have to um choose your own path because uh the game had to guide you in the beginning to some extent and they did their best to make it as open as possible but 
Um, the Great Plateau, I think, was the perfect way to go about um, making it as open as possible while still holding you back just a little bit until you're really ready to go out there and and pick which divine beast you want to go after first. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the you know the design of like the original Mario game in a way, where in that first stage the developer had to teach you the mechanics of the game without being able to tell you. So, I know a lot of people who played Mario for the first time who, who have no experience with this. The first thing they're going to do on World 1-1 is run into that Goomba. But then the game teaches you, after you've died from that Goomba, you learn to jump either on top of the Goomba to kill it or to jump over the Goomba to avoid it. Then it teaches you that the, the coin blocks have either coins or, you know, super items in them to help you, you know, progress through the game. The, the Great Plateau works a lot like that. You get to see, you, you learn right then and there what can kill you, what can't kill you, what items you need to progress, and so on and so forth. Uh... Speaking of items that you need to progress, let's go ahead and let's talk about the Sheikah Slate for a minute. Uh, this is a, you know, Nintendo finding a way to incorporate the gamepad <laughs> into a game. Basically say, hey, we actually put a gamepad into the game. Like, here's a little meta, you know, piece that we're going to add to the game. And Sheikah Slate was cool, especially in the early going of the game for me, because it had your rooms and... You know, there are a crap ton of runes. Uh, my favorite rune, personally, is the bombs. It is There's nothing more fun than climbing to the top of a hill, throwing down that, uh, you know, the ball bomb, watching it roll down the hill in front of a little group of bokoblins, watching the little question mark pop up over their head, and they run to it, they stare at it, and then just blowing them to hell. There's just something satisfying about that. I actually did that. I spent half an hour throwing those bombs at a at a moblin early in the game. Half an hour. Because it took that long for me to kill the moblin by just throwing bombs at it. But I like the runes. I mean, the runes do something. They, they take away an element from the game that is... From previous Zelda games that has become tedious. In previous Zelda games, you needed certain items to progress to progress through a dungeon. So you needed the hook shot in Ocarina of Time to either pull items closer to you or to achieve higher plateaus. Like to get to a higher place in the game, you needed the hook shot. Or maybe you needed the boomerang to disarm, you know, an enemy. But you always needed some type of specific item to progress through a dungeon. The the Sheikah Slate and the runes really take that element out of the game and they put in, it's kind of like doing that but it's putting a spin on it because the Sheikah Slate is accessible at all times and you don't necessarily need all of those runes to progress through like you know the shrines and I thought that was very cool I thought it was a nice element to add to the game um, outside of that there are a few things that were taken away from the Sheikah Slate uh, as far as real world compatibility is concerned that they had initially designed it to incorporate the touch screen on the gamepad. 
those functions were removed when the game got announced for the Switch because when you dock the Switch, you can no longer access the touchscreen functions. That being said, I don't think those were really missed. Uh, as far as the Sheikah Slate is concerned, I thought it was a really nice way of incorporating it into the game. And the story behind it is very cool. Like, it originally belongs to Zelda, and it's given to you at the start of the game. And it is your duty to unlock and upgrade this piece of technology that you don't really understand. And it never really gets explained to you throughout the course of the game, but it is such a helpful tool, especially in the beginning when you don't have health and you don't have a lot of weapons at your disposal. Because as cool as a Great Plateau is, the Great Plateau is not a great place to farm for weapons. Yeah, and it's nice that they give you all those tools that you need to get to solve the puzzles of the game right away in the beginning, because then you don't have to worry that you're going to be at a shrine that you can't uh, solve because they just give everything to you right away. And uh, the Sheikah Slate is, you know, pretty much goes in line with, with the rest of the Sheikah technology that you're uncovering, you know, by finding the shrines and, and uh, pretty much unlocking the, the towers. And that's, um, you know, just an ancient technology that is far superior to anything that that's currently around during the time that you're playing and it's it's pretty cool and uh, I would say my favorite uh, rune is probably the um, and it's it's a difficult choice because I do like the bombs but I would say cryonis just because it's the one that makes me think the most because sometimes I kind of forget I have it like Especially, like, if there's a part where it's, like, you need to cross a river, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to... I don't have enough stamina to swim that distance. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have to swim. I can just use Cryonis. I can just, you know, create a bunch of ice pillars and get across the river that way. Or you see, like, a, a treasure chest floating in the water, and you're like, well, I can't open it in the water. It's like, oh, yeah, I can raise it and then open it on top of the ice pillar. Um, and then you can also use it to climb waterfalls and it's very versatile and it just it has a lot of um, really cool uses that sometimes like I you know because you have to use it over water I, I, I would get to, to points in the game where I would kind of forget that I, I had it and then I would I would um, try to think well how am I going to get around this and I'm like oh yeah I have Cryonis, and and it just kind of forces you to think outside the box, and I really like that. You know, I use Cryonis in a couple couple of different ways. Uh, one way that I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I'm surprised I didn't tell you I did this, but uh, during one of the uh, Divine Beasts, so there's one Divine Beast that I had a particularly hard time getting inside of. Um, it's the, the, the Zora one where you they're throwing ice pillars at you and these giant spiky balls of ice are being thrown at you. At one point, I was actually using Cryonis behind me so that I could make pillars of ice so that I wouldn't have to always break the blocks that were coming behind me with an arrow so that I could save my arrows for the ones that were coming in front of me. And I was like, 
I thought that was a cool use, but there was one point in the game where I used Cryonis in a way that just like, it was just so funny to me. When I was looking for the Hylian shield, you can actually use Cryonis on uh, gateways to open, the, to raise gates. Like there's like, there'll be like a little puddle of water and then you just use the, the cramps and it'll actually put, put that ice pillar up and just open the gate for you and then you just casually pass on through. And they actually use that in a couple of the shrines, but at, by, that, by the time I got to that point, I hadn't played a shrine that used cryonis that much. Um, but man, yeah, these runes, they really helped a lot in the early goings, but I will say this. As I progressed as a character within that game, my reliance on the runes and the Sheikah site as a whole became much more simplistic. Mostly it was to eat, change my clothes, and at one point I stopped using the runes altogether because of the you know the powers that you get from from the champions just over they, they, they became more useful. I disagree. I think the, the runes are always useful because there are a lot of times in the game where you just, you, you, you know, even though you might have Rivali's Gale, um, you're still going to need to use Cryonis to, to raise something out of the water or, or you're still going to need to use the Magnesis to, to um, pull a treasure chest or, or out of the ground or maybe remove an obstacle and there's just the the runes are so versatile that even when you get the power of all uh four champions it really um it really is it's still useful my play style i ended up using the the runes far less once i got the uh the powers of the champions uh Use, I, I use those because a lot those are a lot more straightforward as far as you know just being being the player that I am like I like to kind of like plow through enemies like because with, with with a lot of like the combative uses for the runes it's it's always like tactical whereas with a lot of the the uh, the, the, the abilities that you get from the champions those can be used a lot more aggressively. So my reliance on the runes really, at that point in the game, became more about just solving our next topic, which are the shrines. Shrines take the place of traditional dungeons in, in the Legend of Zelda game, for the most part. I mean, you do have four traditionally styled dungeons in this game, but for the most part, you're going to spend the majority of this game on your shrine quest, because it's very essential. So... I want to discuss the shrines as a mechanic real quick because in order to get stronger as a character, you need to complete shrines because the once you when you get the orbs from the shrines and then you use those orbs to upgrade your character. So shrines become a real big focal point of anybody's play session. It doesn't matter who's playing. Now there are so many different ways to play this game. Wait. Sometimes I get on YouTube and I see somebody playing the game in a way that I never even thought to even imagine to play the game that way. And yet there's somebody doing something there that I couldn't fathom. But 
you have to do the shrines. You cannot progress without the shrines. You you will forever be weak if you spend this game ignoring shrines. And because of that, it, it, it adds a, a level of... It, it's a new mechanic to the game. They don't progress the story either. Like, they only progress Link in, as a character, but you get no story elements from the shrine. I mean, you have your... You know, it tells you the name of the shrine, complete the challenge, and then from there, you you meet like the you know the 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 guardian of the of the shrine. He gives you the orb, and you're done, and you're 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 looking for your next one. But as a mechanic, it was very interesting because that's how you make yourself stronger as you play through the game. So and it takes the place of dungeons, which for me, I prefer that i prefer to get my puzzles in the game through like little doses instead of having to spend hours solving things in a dungeon because you know as great as some of the dungeons in uh like for example ocarina of time has some really good dungeons but not all of them are great there there's one or two uh kind of dry uh areas in the game where you're just you know, trying to, to plow through it, um, and it's really not that that fun. And, um, like, I think that, for me, you know, like, uh, in Ocarina of Time, you know, I, I really enjoyed the water dungeon. That was really cool. But then, you know, when I got to the to the dungeon where you're inside the, uh, the body of, of uh, I forget what, you, you go inside, like... The Deco Tree? No, not the deco tree. Like you're 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 running through like somebody's like you know stomach. Jabba Jabba's belly. There we go. Thank you. That dungeon to me was first off. It was it was just you know you're running through like parts of his stomach and and they're trying to make it look like there's like you know bile and other gross you know parts of his anatomy, and it just it doesn't really look that great graphically. And then the, the solving the puzzles in that one, I I remember not enjoying that at all. I was like, God, I really want this to be over. But in Breath of the Wild, they took away the dungeons. They they give you to you in smaller doses. So if you don't want to, you don't really feel like solving a bunch of puzzles, then you can take a break from the shrines. And then if you really want to, then you can go shrine hunting, and it's up to you. And and I really enjoyed that because um for the most part the shrines were really fun and i didn't have to spend three hours trying to to get through a dungeon in breath of the wild i could just go to a shrine and and um and there were so many great shrines i mean in my opinion my favorite shrine without a doubt is eventide island it just it's probably the hardest one in the game because once you get to that island, it strips you of everything. It strips you of all your items, your food, your weapons, your armor. You are naked and alone and afraid on that island. And it's like, hey, you gotta, and, and you have to take, you know, three orbs and place them in their respective, um, what do you call it? Platforms for the you know for the orbs and and you're fighting you know a bunch of enemies that are trying to kill you. 
I mean, as soon as you get to the island, the first thing you probably see are, are the uh, bokoblins running around, and you're like, crap, now i got to find something to kill these things with, and I have nothing. And depending on how early you go to, to that island, it's not, it's not going to be easy for you. Because, um, and by the way, the official name of the shrine is the Korgu Chide Shrine. And you have to kill a Hinox on that island. And most of the time, you're, you're stuck with wooden bows and, like, tree branches. And so, if you, like, the first time I went to that island, all I had was Mipha's Grace. And let me tell you, Mipha's Grace was not doing a whole lot to save me. If you don't have the power of the, of the other Divine Beast, which is the only thing that they don't take away from you, that island can be miserable. And I remember getting through that island and getting so close to, to beating it and then a blood moon happened and everything that I killed came back and I was like oh my god and I died because of it and then um, I redid it but I didn't realize that like when it restarted you it goes back in time before the blood moon so then I realized that I was at a point in the game where the blood moon was going to happen at, at, no matter what I did on that island. And so I would I had to leave the island and, and give up on it and come back to it later when a blood moon wasn't about to just pop up and, and ruin all my hard work. And, and when I came back to the island um, the second time, I, I had more of the, the powers. And, and really, Urbosa's Fury um, is the most helpful in, in taking out that Hinox. And that's, that's, I think, probably the key. If you only went to that island with one uh, power, that would be the one that would probably be the most important. But um, it is just, it forces you, like, Breath of the Wild already forces you to use your environment to survive, and it does not hold your hand. And that, that island, by the time you get there, you, you're already thinking, like, man, I have all this food. I've cooked up all these dishes. I got these great weapons. I got some armor. You're like, I'm a badass. And you get to the island, and it takes it all away from you, and you are naked, just like the beginning of the game, except you're even more naked because they don't give you anything. And you're like, what the hell? And it's just, you know, it's it's so rewarding when you complete that, um, you know, when and you're just completing the, basically the challenges on the island just so that you can get that stupid shrine to rise out of the ground and but it's satisfying and that's that was my my favorite one this is one shrine very early in the game where you use the uh cryonis and you use it to scale like these waterfalls within the shrine to get to uh just treasure chest and to ultimately to get to you know you know, the Shikamunk at the very top. I thought that was a really cool way of teaching, but also incorporating that particular rune. And I, I really like any of the shrines that really incorporated Cryonis were always a little bit more challenging for me. Uh, there were a couple shrines that I absolutely hated, though. Uh, the, uh, the ball through the maze. Any of the emotion-based shrines really were the ones I didn't like. You're right. A lot of these dungeons in the previous Zelda games, they're, they're really tedious and they're long. To have these bite-sized, you know, sh you know, shrines slash dungeons, it really helped 
me feel like I was accomplishing more. And you, there was like this instant reward for completing a shrine. You got the orb, and then the orb can upgrade your character. So there's like that reward to completing a shrine that you don't really get in previous Zelda games. The reward for the other Zelda games was given to you really early within those shrine in those dungeons, and that's the progression item. So you need yes. the hook shot. You need the hook shot in like Ocarina of Time. You get that very early. So you so by the time you've completed the dungeon, you you've become adept at using the hook shot. So that reward isn't fair that there is for when you get that orb at the end of completing one of these shrines. Well, and, and you learn very quickly that there is always a treasure chest in every single shrine you go to. And some shrines have more than one. Some shrines have two or three in them. And so you're, you're constantly scouring the shrine because you know there's at least one in every shrine. And so not only are you going to get that orb that helps you level up your character, you might find a cool piece of armor or a weapon or maybe just, you know, a, a precious gem that you could use to sell because the rewards from the treasure chest, um, you know, nine times out of ten, it's it's worth trying to find them in the shrine. So it's, it's it, you're right, it's an immediate reward just for completing one shrine. Yeah, and it, it's, it's done in a way that is, it's very intuitive to, to find a shrine and you know, just go ahead and do it and complete them. And now, there's not a single shrine that I struggled too deeply with. I do think they could have scaled the shrines up a little more. Um, that's not to say that it was, that, you know, they're bad. It's just that I just wish the difficulty level of those shrines was a little bit higher because ah, some of them, man, you can complete, you can complete some shrines in like, Less than five minutes. Yeah, that's true. There, I feel like the the difficulty level of the shrines was um, was pretty much spot on for me because yes, there are some shrines that are super easy, but there are some shrines I had some difficulty with. And uh, for example, um, there's one right near the Deku, the Great Deku Tree, and you're supposed to look at the constellation to get the pattern for where you want to place the orbs and I honestly I I um I stared at that wall and I tried to figure it out and I just I couldn't get it and I'm I still haven't solved it. I am coming I'm gonna come back to it later but and, and there's some other shrines too like some of the ones where you've gotta um connect the electrical charges to certain areas where you where you, I, I just kinda was like I'm just gonna be cheap and connect all my weapons and and there were some there were some difficult ones, and they're varied because not every shrine is a traditional. You're going down into this little underground, you know, shrine cavern. Like if you've completed any of the mazes, those are some of the most intricate and beautiful shrines that they have. And so far, I've completed two out of the three mazes or labyrinths uh, shrines. And those are some of the most um, fun shrines to do, and they're probably the ones um, that closest resemble uh, the old dungeons, just because uh, you've really, you know, got to work your way through the labyrinth, especially if you want to try to find the treasure in the labyrinth, and then eventually at the end, the shrine. Um, so, th and those 
can be time consuming. Uh, it, you know, even if you it, like, even for some of the uh, ones that, like, if you have Revali's Gale and you just want to fly to the top and cheat and 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 run to the top and drop down every time. If you're trying to get the treasure in those shrines, it still can be a little bit time-consuming. And like I said, I've only done two out of three so far, but those ones are a little bit more elaborate. And 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 because they're so varied, for me, it's like I didn't really um, complain too much when I found a shrine that took me like two minutes to complete because I'm like, well, you know, this one wasn't as rewarding, but I, I feel like they've got you know, shrines from easy all the way up to very hard, especially with the combat trials, because the combat trials by themselves um, were also pretty rewarding. Even even at the point I'm in the game now, like, the ones that um, are a major test of strength still give me a challenge. So I um, appreciate the very... Um, number of, of different shrines, although I, I, I am kind of with you on the motion controls, those ones, uh, if, if there is a, a weak point, it, it's probably the motion control based shrines, but, I mean, hey, you know, there's 120 of them, so. <laughs> uh, I don't really want to touch on the Korok seeds too much, let's, uh, I do want to say that as a mechanic, that is the weakest mechanic in the entire game, and it's, it's bad because it's so essential to upgrading like your inventory but at the same time uh you don't really need to find a lot to upgrade enough to the point where where you have enough slots for everything um yeah i completed a game with only 36 korok seeds yeah and and that's enough to to get a few extra slots and everything i, I will say that it is a little bit ridiculous that they expect you to find 900 but that said when it comes to the exploration aspect of the game, I was glad that when I went to some remote part in a corner of the map that was not going to help me, like there's no shrine, it's not part of a side quest, it's just some crazy location, it's nice that there at least was a Koroxy to reward me for traveling to this remote spot because there are some places on the map that they're not close to a shrine it's hard to get to there's almost nothing there but you know at least there was a Korok seed or two Korok seeds to reward me for going to this crazy spot which wasn't going to help me do anything else other than to say that I have been there exactly all right let's go ahead and uh let's since we're talking about dungeons and shrines let's go ahead and let's go and move on to the divine beasts uh so these are your more traditional dungeons and there are four uh Let's start with order of completion. Uh, for me, it was uh, Varuta, uh, Varudania, Vanaboris, and then Vamado. So that's the Zora, then Goron, then Gerudo, then the Rito. That's the order in which I completed the uh, Divine Beasts. Uh, my personal favorite in that bunch was actually Varuta. It was my first one, but it was also the one that gave me the most difficulty just trying to get inside of it because you're riding on the back of a uh, Sidon and you basically have no control over what he's doing and you have to like basically just defend your way to the point where he gets you close enough that you can you know attack the divine beast 
and then you can get in. That actually took me about 30 minutes of just like using arrows left and right to just kind of deflect all those blocks of ice and spike balls that were coming at me. But I thought it was great. And then once you're inside of a Divine Beast, I love the amount of control that you have after you've like eliminated the, you know, the Aether and you can like rotate the divine beast. And it's a very interesting way of, of incorporating like traditional Zelda dungeon elements and giving them a new twist. And it was very cool, especially like in the early goings, like lifting the trunk of a, of Varuta so that you could get to the top of his head and just doing all that. And then once you get inside of that, once you've completed all the things you need to do within a Divine Beast, you get to fight a form of Ganon. And these were interesting because traditionally in Zelda games, you have your own kind of like dungeon bosses. To see a portion of Ganon as a dungeon boss, that was a new twist for me. And initially, I didn't know if I liked it. Because Zelda has such great character design and they've always done a great job of designing these dungeon bosses to see, to, to fight a version of Ganon, it felt off. But ultimately though, I think it works in the context of the game, especially, you know, once you realize why you're fighting a form of Ganon, and we'll get to that when we discuss the memory quest portion of the game, why you're fighting forms of Ganon versus, you know, traditional dungeon bosses. But the, for me, the Divine Beasts were some of the strongest points of the game. And it took me about thir 15 hours to get to my first one. But once I was there, I realized I want to do more story stuff just so I can get to these Divine Beasts faster because they work as a me mechanically. They are the best part of the game for me. I did the same order you did. I went Zoro, Goron, Jiruo, and Ryo. Although, if I could do it all over again, I would have gone Ryo first. Because uh, Rivali's Gale is probably the best uh, power in the game. When I first got it, because it was the last one I did, I was like, kind of... At first, I thought it was like a letdown. I was like, what? Just some gust of wind that shoots me up in the air? I was like, lame. But then I realized, like... God, if I had had this at the beginning of the game, it would have helped me with literally everything. Because you realize how versatile it is. First off, when it comes to just exploration alone, especially climbing mountains, climbing is really tedious. I'm, I'm glad that I found all the climbing gear so that I could climb things faster. But I built up my stamina wheel a lot just so I could jump up the mountains because I, I hated the time it took for me to just, you know, climb my way up. And uh, Rivali's Gale really almost eliminates that, except with some of the tallest uh, peaks in the game. And you can just shoot straight up, and then even if you don't have a big stamina wheel, like in the beginning of the game, it would have been nice, because I would have been able to reach some areas of the game that I, I couldn't otherwise reach, because I would have been able to use Rivali's Gale to make up some of that difference so that I didn't have to climb the whole way. And then you can use it to escape from enemies. And then I use it a lot when fighting Rhinos. I'll shoot up, glide down into them. As soon as I get close enough, pull out my bow, slow motion. And, and that's how I start a lot of battles with Rhinos. And um, 
it's just I mean you can use it to cross rivers like I really um, and, and it's the fastest one to recharge of all the, the yeah. four and I was like man like I really wish I would have done that one first because it's it's the most useful of the four and it's my favorite boss battle because um, I, I would say the Zora one uh, that that you liked is probably my second favorite because it, it is pretty cool. Uh, but but just you know, being able to just constantly glide without having to worry about really falling, and then pulling out your bow in slow motion, and it's constantly like I mean, it's like something out of the Matrix. You are just it, it is one of the most cinematic battles in the game flying around, going back between the slow motion to shoot your your bomb arrows, and it's like, it's beautiful. And not only is the boss battle beautiful, but the Rito village is the most picturesque village in the game, in my opinion, and there's a lot of beautiful locations in the game, but there's just something special about the Rito like little nest and they live in tree houses man i love that yeah it's just really pretty i like i like that it's it's just so beautiful and because basically they're living in one big tree house that cir circles around a ginormous rock by the time you get to the top you get to see an overview of, of the area around you you're you're up so high it's just it's nice to jump to glide to the areas in the game that you want to go afterwards and then um, you don't have to deal with any of the elements um, in, in the village like you do it with you know in the Goron city where you know it, you like when I got to Goron city man I, I was like probably three minutes away from being set on fire because I was on my last fire potion and I was like, crap, I am going to die. And I got into the village, and I was just like, what the hell? Like, there's no, there's no immunity from this in the village. Like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And I was like, you know, crap. And I ran around for like, you know, just like crazy looking for the, for the item shop. Because I was like, dear God, I need some, I, I really hope they, they're selling the, the gear here. And they, and they did. But I mean, I had like, I had like two or three minutes left before I was about to be done for. So That's hilarious. The worst part is, is that you could have got all that armor for free if you had just caught the lizards for that guy. Like you get all that gear for free if you catch ten fire lizards oh. for this guy who's wearing the gear, and that's how I did it. So by the time I got into the the Goron City, I didn't need that. The only piece that you don't get from the man is the helmet. So I, all I had to buy was the helmet portion of that. Okay. See, I yeah, I was like down to my last potion, and I was like, man, I'm gonna burn up into, you know, I'm gonna be cremated in Goron City if I don't find some armor soon but um you don't you know and and i guess well i guess with the gerudo city you do get the immunity from the elements there but um except to the except when you go to like that cold section of it like right at the outskirts of it right next to the uh the flight school then it's all like that ice territory just yeah yeah uh, but like in the within the village itself i mean um but yeah you do you do have to deal with the the uh 
cold elements when when you you know go towards the the mountains um but it's just i don't know it's just there's something special about it like like normally you would think by the time you get to the last um village you're going to be uh, or your last divine beast that you're going to be fighting you would think that the game wouldn't be able to impress you anymore but um, to me, that was like the most beautiful location, and it was my favorite place in the game. I, I, I just like the Rito people in general. I don't know why. Um, you know, they're, they're all uh, warriors, kind of like the Gerudo, but at the same time, they, they kind of have this uh, really like unique, almost bohemian culture to them, and... Uh, I just, that was, I mean, you know, I wish I had done it first. <laughs> no, uh, but as a mechanic, man, how do you feel that the, with the Divine Beast being the four core dungeons, how do you feel they how, they work in comparison to uh, shrines in general? Yeah, the, that's where the, the dungeons in the game, um, you know, really, you, you have to go through a more traditional dungeon. And there were times where, like, I would get kind of stuck, and, and I'd be like, "Man, you know, this is it, you know, it's taking forever." But it was never um, to the point where where I felt it was, you know, tedious, and, and I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. To me, it worked. Like that was um, the main way that the game reveals the story to you. Uh, Especially if you don't do the memory quest. So, I, I mean, to me, it worked out perfectly. Um, I almost wish maybe there was one more. Uh, just, just so that I could go, you know, to another civilization and explore their culture. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about Divine Beasts, all the Divine Beasts have a champion. We have four champions. We have uh, Mifa. We have Daruk, we have Revali, and we have Urbosa. Uh, they are tasked with piloting the Divine Beasts. Uh, and they are all very interesting characters. I'm, it's kind of sad that they're all dead when you uh, encounter their presence. And the only interactions you have with them is through the memories. Yeah, it's kind of morbid. Yeah, it is. And they're all, they've all been trapped. Like They're dead and they can't rest. They've all been trapped within the Divine Beast that they were tasked to pilot. But, that being said, each one of these people has a personality. Uh, Mifa being so like soft-spoken yet determined. Like her sheer motivation of just protecting Link. There's something beautiful in that storyline. And then ultimately you find out that she loved Link and she, you know, she built. You know, she 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 made his the Zora suit for him because when a when a in that culture when the, when a female Zora makes the 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 costume for the male Zora, it's kind of like saying you're my soulmate, and it's kind of sad. Like that moment, like was painful. Like it was yeah. painful to watch because like you get that armor, and it's that point in the game where the old the old uh, Zora he's hating on Link. Like, he's saying, we don't need help from an outside interloper. We don't need this one. He's the reason your daughter's dead. And 
it's his fault that Mifa's dead and we should we should kill him. And they're saying he's saying all this bad stuff about Link, and then it's that moment where you know Prince Sidon was like, Look, this outfit fits him perfectly. How would that even be possible? Mifa made it for him. That was like it was a beautiful moment in the game for me. And I wish the game had done a better job of explaining the Zora tradition behind that because you don't really get it unless you do the side quest where you have to find the different um, little uh, like Zora uh, ruins that give a little story on, on the history of their people. And one of the, the ruins tells you that in the, you know, like you said, in, in Zora tradition, the women um, make the armor for their future husbands. So when when a Zora w woman makes that armor, she's making it for her future husband. And so they and they didn't. I didn't understand that in the beginning when when that part of the story was revealed because it's like, oh, she made that for you. Well. Obviously, she's giving you a gift. That means she must like you or she must really love you. And I thought, oh, wow. Like, But the true significance of that, it, you know, especially when the other villagers are like, oh, she made that for you? Oh. Like, you know, you don't really get it. Like, to me, I'm thinking like, oh, they must have thought like, oh, she, you know, she had a crush on me. No, that you make that armor for your future husband, and that is a Zora tradition. So that it's not like, oh, she she wanted to, you know, go out with you. It's like she wanted to marry you. She was that much in love with you that she wanted to marry you, and that, um, you know, like when you realize that, it, it's like an emotional moment. You're like, oh my god. No, it truly tugged at my heartstrings because it's like she's dead. You know, she's by the. By the time all this transpires, she is long since passed, and not only is she dead, but she's trapped. You know, her her spirit can't rest. So it's this whole like, this is the saddest Zelda game that they've ever made. But Mifa is the character that I thought had the most beautiful story arc of all of the champions. In that sense, she's almost the most fleshed out of all of them, and. I think what made that all the more special for me was the Zora village was the first like village, you know, Valruta being the first divine beast that I had, you know, done that being my first village. It is one of my strongest memories of the game. And that part just sticks out when you have that moment of realization. It's, it's just sad. So every time you, you wear that outfit in that section of the game, it, it's almost heartbreaking for the character of Mifa. And, and I, I didn't expect that level of storytelling in an open world game. It's, and they accomplished it so brilliantly where you are given hints, but you're never it's never really outright spoken. And when you do do that quest and you get all that information, it carries more weight. That's my favorite part of the game because it is the most complete story arc that a champion gets. Um, then we have Daruk. He, Daruk's motivation, he's just a protector, and he he would do anything for the progression of his people, and I think he has a really nice moment after you've freed him from the, from uh, the Ganon form, and he sees his descendant, 
and he you know he he's he's wondering out loud whether or not the Gorons have managed without him like have they evolved have they gone on to do great things do they even still exist and then when he sees like his I think it's his great grandson Yunobo when he sees Yunobo and Yunobo sees him it's this moment where in that moment I kind of felt that like Daruk could have peace because he's seen that his people did have the ability to go forward uh then we have Urbosa Urbosa has this personality like she's kind of like the trickster of the bunch but she's also the most insightful well, she's a, she's a natural leader. She's fierce, and you know she's physically imposing. And out of all the champions, she's my favorite because she's um, the best. In, in my opinion, she is the best voice acted. the The voice actor who plays her is just world class. I mean, she captures her personality perfectly. She's like intimidating, but she's got a sweet side to her at the same time. And she's just, like, such... She's the one that you want them to... You know, she's the one you want to lead you in battle. Like, she is that... The leader of the group. And um, because I did her third... Uh, when I got to that point in the game, I was like, man, if she died, if Ganon killed her, you know Ganon has to be strong. Because Urbosa is, like, the most imposing champion in the game. And she's dead. So I was like, damn, like that that was like another moment in the story where I was like, even Urbosa got killed. But she actually has like one of the best lines in the whole game. And it's at the very end of the game, that final cutscene when all the uh when all the champions are striking at Ganon, she's like she says something along the lines of, I heard Ganon was once born a Gerudo. It's like it's time we take care of this and she snaps her fingers. I was like Damn, as like damn. First off, that's an awesome way to uh, it's an awesome way to acknowledge like a previous Zelda timeline where Ganon was at one point the king of the Gerudos. But it's also it just shows like how no bullshit Urbosa is. She she does not deal with no bull, and be, that's just such a brilliant line. I was like. Oh my god, whoever wrote that line, give that person a freaking raise. Because that was the moment that clearly captured the essence of that character for me. Like, she... There was, like, no quit in Arbosa. But I also, like, out of all the champions, she is, like, the most insightful. She truly understands what Zelda is feeling. Whereas the other champions are... Where, like, you know, Rivali could give two shits what Zelda feels like. And, you know, Daruk is... He's kind of... He's not dumb, but in a sense he's oblivious to how Zelda feels about, you know, Link and his capabilities versus Zelda's capabilities. She's the one to break it down to Link. Every In every cutscene that she has, she's breaking it down that there's a reason why Zelda despises Link in the early goings and she is the most insightful out of all of them and I'm, I think, yeah. and with I think Mifa, that was great with Mifa, Mifa's like he's mine bitch exactly <laughs> no yeah like she is the most insightful and she has that nice moment with Zelda where you know you where Link finds her and Zelda's kind of like resting up on her and she's sleeping and they're like let's wake her up now and she's like wait a minute she snaps her fingers and 
creates the lightning. She was great. She she was a she was a a very strong positive female role model uh, for for you know this game, and I she has character. But it's time to move on to my favorite champion, Ravali. I love Ravali. Ravali is so arrogant. He's arrogant even past the point of his demise. But I love that cutscene where he's like talking to Link and he's like, the only reason they even think you're better than me is because you hold that sword, blah, blah, blah. He's like, if you're so great, you'll meet me at the top of uh, the, uh, the Divine Beast. And he's like, oh, wait, you can't fly. And he just flies off and he's so arrogant. And even after you freed his spirit, he's like, I guess you're not that bad. Like, he just cannot acknowledge Link in any way, shape, or form. And I love that. Like, it's something endearing about somebody who potentially could be a greater warrior than Link. But he's lit, you know, but because Link carries the Master Sword, you know, Rivali will never be acknowledged for his accomplishments. Like, his accomplishments will always pale in comparison to that of Link's. And he's, he feel, he's aware of this, and he doesn't want to take it lying down. And I, I think he's... And his voice actor portrays him so great. Like, he might have the single best voice actor out of all of them. He truly captures, like, the arrogance of the character. And, like, I just... I For some reason, I just thought he was really cool. Any thoughts on Rivali? Yeah, he was my second favorite. All right. So, aside from the champions, the champions do have a few descendants. And the descendants... They are there to help you progress through a divine beast. I don't want to get too deep into them, but we have uh, we have Prince Sidon, uh, who is Mifa's brother, uh, and he basically he's kind of cool. I like I love his poses. Like he is so anime. Like he's just got that smile on the thumbs. And he's like, yeah, you're awesome, Link. Thank you. He and the. The way that I encountered him, I thought that was really neat. It just ha- it was happenstance. I just ended up being in that part of like the Lanry wetlands, and he just pokes his head out of the water. He's like, "Hey, come here! I want to talk to you." I was like, "Oh, he's gonna kill me," because I was so wary at that point of anybody that was like, "Come here, come here," because they would always turn out to be a freaking ninja. He's not really a descendant though, because that Mifo was his sister. Yeah, yeah, no, he's kin to her. But uh, I thought. I, I loved him as a character. I thought he was probably the best of all of the the champion's relatives. Yeah, I, I would say so. That's probably... He was. He seemed like he was the most um, charismatic, the most fleshed out character. Yeah, I would agree with that. Then we have uh, Ginobo, who is the descendant of Daruk, who easily has probably the worst mission in the whole game is babysitting him throughout the mountain range with all the flying guards and you have to whistle for him to come to you. Breath of the Wild is as close to perfect as you can make a video game, but that babysitting quest is awful. It made me hate Yonobo as a character. Then we have Riju, who is the direct descendant of Urbosa. Out of all of them, she might be the most fleshed out because she actually doesn't think she deserves to be the, you know, to have the power that she's been entrusted with. But 
when push comes to shove, she actually has like one of the coolest moments, especially when you're trying to get into that divine beast and you're like sand surfing and she's protecting you with like that electricity field. I, that was a cool moment for me. Just love how that moment played out visually. And uh, who is the last descendant? Teba. Teba is the descendant of Ravali. He is the one that will hook you up with... Uh, you encounter him at the flight school. And he flies with you up to the top of that uh, Divine Beast. And he's actually... That's actually, like like you said, he was actually really cool in my opinion because of what he allows you to do in that moment when you takes you up to the to the divine beast and you fly through that sky and you just trying to take out that divine beast's generator so that you can get inside um but all of the divine all of the uh, descendants have the ultimate goal of helping you stop the divine beast from rampaging their village in that sense i kind of felt like None of these characters were all that fleshed out because they didn't really have any other motivation. None of them had separate motivations from one another. So they became kind of tedious for me. I want to move on to the memory quest. This is probably the most important thing you can do in this whole game. And it is hard to find certain memories, but it is so satisfying. It is the one thing that you and I discussed how would they tell story in a game where you could go directly to the final boss if you chose? And they did it through flashbacks. Um, but I love it. There is a clear progression of the characters, especially Link and Zelda. Where, well, more so Zelda than Link. The memory quest is important because you get to find out who Zelda is as a person. Something that I don't think we've actually really explored in any other Legend of Zelda title in the franchise. It starts with her being very disdainful towards Link to ultimately you think there's this, you know, there's this bond that they're forming with one another in spite of the fact that she can't use her powers. But there's one memory that was just great, and it's the one where King Rome is basically grilling her to hell. I thought that was just this... It, it, it was like a very real moment where it's like, I think every parent and child relationship, you can there's a moment where the child has disappointed the parent and then they berate the child for it. The way he gets on Zelda, he's like, do you know what the people call you? Like, they call you the princess with no power. And I was like, what? I was like, damn, damn, daddy, take it back a notch, man. <laughs> They call you Princess Peach. What? <laughs> I was like, whoa, take it back a notch, man. You're grilling her. Now, ultimately, did you did you find his diary in the castle? Yeah, I did. And ultimately, like, he regrets it. Like, and, you know, and that's, you know, the diaries are kind of like an expansion of the memory quest. But, like, you know, you see that memory. And then later on, when you find his diary and you you hear like the regret that he has and that he's like, the next time I see her, I'm going to tell her that it doesn't matter. We'll find a way to stop Ganon. And that never happens because he never sees Zelda after pretty much after that moment because Calamity Ganon strikes. Um, yeah. I think that's the most, and they do 
kind of placed that memory in the castle for a reason because they kind of want you to find it last. Um, so they, they don't really want you to see that first. Um, as much as you can do any memory you want, that one is there for a reason. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a really poignant moment because throughout, because the way that they tell a story, they really can't tell it like as much as I would love to see like, you know, 10 minute cutscenes with every memory because you can get them in any order, they can't go too deep into the story. But that right there is the moment where like I actually had sympathy for Zelda because I thought, okay, throughout the game, she'd kind of been appearing as um, a whiny brat, you know, a little bit entitled and and I'm just like, you know, this chick is like so useless. And then you really realize the weight of the world is on her shoulders and she's just a 16-year-old girl and she's trying to learn how to harness her powers without anyone's help because her mother's dead. She doesn't have any support. She's trying to do this, you know, before most kids graduate high school and she's trying to like you know save the the world as a 16 year old girl and she doesn't feel like there's anybody else that that really can help her because outside of link it's like you know who's who's going to stop ganon and so she's like well she really has a lot of pressure on her and and is as devout as she is and as hard as she tries she just hasn't been able to unlock those powers yet and she's like well maybe i'm a failure maybe i suck but even if i am the princess with no powers i'm gonna find a way to beat him anyway and i'm gonna unlock the sheikah technology because she still has enough foresight to understand how powerful that technology is and she's like i'm gonna find a way even if i can't use my powers and and, and, you know, you see where her dad's coming from. He's like, your powers are the only way. You don't even understand how powerful they they really are. But that's what you need to be working on. And she's like, this is like plan B in case I'm a failure. And he's like, you don't have a choice. You can't fail. And, and that's a lot of weight to put on a 16-year-old girl. So at that moment in the game, she went from being whiny bratty Zelda to, like, you know, weight of the world, like, kind of more mature um tortured zelda and i was like mm, i kind of have sympathy for her now well it, it basically everything makes sense from that point as to why she is the way she is like it always it like when you see what what kind of pressure she actually has to deal with everything kind of everything else falls in line and and it, it it adds. It actually adds more weight to the fact that Urbosa is the only one who can kind of see and, and is, is insightful enough to understand why Zelda is the way she is. So it added a little bit more to Urbosa's character that she was able to decipher all of that just based off of Zelda's actions and words. Now, my favorite memory, though, might actually be the point where she tries to get Link to eat the frog. Uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. Uh, all right. Well, we kind of talked within the, but as a as a mechanic though, how do you feel that this works? Because we te this is a game where 
story actually kind of really took a back seat. Um, there are only 13 memories. 18 but, if you include the ones that you automatically trigger for encountering a divine beast. It's not like there's a lot of story in Zelda games to begin with. Like, for most Zelda games, this is actually a lot of story. That's true, but as a mechanic, it, it, it was it's intriguing because despite the fact there is an order to the memories, because you can find them in any in any order, each memory has to be self-contained enough that you get an understanding for what's happening in that moment, who the characters are, what are their motivations in that moment. It's it is, just a... Sorry, go ahead. I thought it was a very effective way of, of doing that because by, by keeping each memory self-contained, I felt like they were actually able to move the story along. It's a reflection of the game as a whole, though, because the entire game is like that. It's very difficult to make a game that... You can go anywhere and do anything, and it's not going to conflict. One location is not going to conflict with another. Like, you know, um, you can. They make it so that you can, um, you know, go straight to the the Zora people. But like, you know, if you don't meet Prince Sidon in each checkpoint along the way, it's not going to affect the story. Like, you could meet him. The first time when he appears at the bridge, and then maybe you only hit one checkpoint, and you just you, you kind of like find a way to get to the the Zora Palace without seeing him along the the route. It's not going to affect the story. You know, you could you could choose to do the Gerudo people first and go all the way to the desert, which you know that would be a hard one to do first, but. Uh, it you know you're, you're not gonna um, it's it, you're not gonna get to a point where you can't achieve like you, you can't complete the quests that they ask of you or you can't complete the shrines because you just don't have like a game mechanic that hasn't been unlocked because everything is unlocked right away and and nothing is gonna conflict with the, with the choices that you make after you get off the Great Plateau, and it's really difficult to make a game like that, um, and that's just, the memory quest is just kind of an extended version of the direction the game takes as a whole. No, I agree with that assessment wholeheartedly, and ultimately, like, I just... It, it, it was a hurdle for me. To me, I thought it would be a hurdle for them to overcome telling a story in this in this method. It, it kind of makes sense. A lot of these, a lot of the delays that this game suffered through, make sense because they have to account for all the different like encounters that you can have, and how can they tell a self? How can they tell a open and self-contained story at the exact same time? So I thought that was, I thought that was very interesting as to how they were going to accomplish all of that. But I think they, ultimately, I think they were able to successfully mesh the two concepts together. Um, well, we actually discussed a fair amount of Zelda's character uh, while we were talking about the memory quest. So let's just go ahead and slide into Link as a character. This is the most badass version of Link I think that's ever existed. 
we start this game and Link primarily has all the skills necessary to um, to accomplish anything in the game because uh, Brian Altano said it best uh, on the on IGN's MVC podcast. He said, when you play as Link, it's like you're playing the sequel to a Zelda game that you've never played. And that's why Link is the badass that he is. And you see him as a badass throughout the memory quest. Uh, one of my favorite memories is the moment where you're saving Zelda where he's saving Zelda from like the Yiga ninja and he just has this badass moment and you realize that this version of Link is a complete warrior whereas in previous Legend of Zelda games you make Link a complete warrior. The version of Link you're playing as now he does have the complete and necessary skill set needed to accomplish all his goals uh, to the point where he already has the Master Sword in those memories. This is a very complete version of Link. One, it, it, it actually makes sense. Because this version of Link is already so complete, the need for the traditional tutorial is actually kind of explained away throughout the story of the game. Because this version of Link already has all the necessary skills, you don't have to learn as much within the game. They don't need to teach you because you have... He has all those skills. Or if they do have to teach you a skill, they do it in the context of a battle. Yeah, when you have to learn something like the perfect dodge or the perfect parry, they teach that to you throughout. They teach that to you in a very combative way. You learn those things through the course of battle. And it kind of makes sense because it's almost like Link is recalling how to do things that he already knows. So I think it's it's incorporated into the story as much as it is incorporated into the gameplay. So this version of Link is very, very complete as a warrior. And even his motivations, like he has, like they explain in one of the memory quests that his father was a knight. He knew he was going to be a knight as well. Like Link has his own expectations to live up to, but he's already done it. By the time, in the memory quest at least, you realize that Link has accomplished all the goals that have been that have been set before him, with the exception of defeating Ganon. Uh, any thoughts on Link as a character throughout this game? Most of Link's character development is actually, if you read through the diaries in Hyrule Castle, uh, because there's a part where Zelda, if you read her diary, she explains that. She always thought that Link was, you know, so strong and just never had any troubles. And she always thought, well, you know, he can't relate to me because he doesn't have the same pressure and he just seems like nothing bothers him. But then she has a conversation with him and you realize that Link actually does talk. He's actually human and has feelings. And he reveals to her that he actually does have a lot of uh, worries and insecurities, but he keeps it together because he's trying to be strong for her. And he's, he's trying, he, he feels that if he ever breaks that composure, that he's, he's going to lose it. And he's just got to keep, you know, pushing forward with everything because he can't 
allow himself to show weakness, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have worries or doubts or fears. He's, he's a complete person inside. He just, you know, he's choosing to be stoic for her. And she finally realizes that she's not the only one with a lot of weight on her shoulders. Exactly. Yeah. That's very poignant thought right there, man. Like I couldn't have said that any better myself. All right, let's go ahead and move on to Ganon, Calamity Ganon. This is a form of Ganon that has given up on reincarnation. Every Throughout the franchise, we have been told that these characters are ciphers. They, they are reincarnations of, of previous people. Like This is a cycle that keeps happening over and over. They, they are reborn. They battle. Hyrule is destroyed. Hyrule is rebuilt over and over this cycle. But this version of Ganon, he's tired of dying. He's and and to accomplish it, he's given up on his his physical form. He has no body. He is he is a mass of aether that takes on the form of this dragon that we see uh, circling Hyrule Castle, and he looks menacing. Uh, and ultimately, this is uh, my one complaint about the game in hindsight is is Ganon. In other Zelda games, Ganon is a much more proactive and menacing. He in games like The Wind Waker, you have repeated battles against Ganon. He is much more proactive in his quest to stop Link or obtain the Triforce. Since the Triforce doesn't really play a factor into this game, Ganon has no real need to to go out and and be as proactive of an enemy. You do fight his individual blight forms, but outside of that, Ganon is a very stationary character, which ultimately had me feeling like there was no real sense of urgency to get to Hyrule Castle because there was no real imminent threat of Ganon. And I think out of all the characters that this game presents us with, Ganon is the one that falls flat. This is supposed to be the main bad guy, the main threat. And ultimately, I felt like he wasn't all that menacing. And then couple that with the fact that if you have completed all four of the Divine Beasts, by the time you encounter Ganon in the, uh, the, the sanctum of Hyrule Castle, you fighting him and half of his health has already been depleted. And then the ensuing battle that takes place afterwards isn't hard. Ganon, I struggled more with Lynels than I did with Ganon as a as a boss. Ganon felt flat to me. His motivations, though, are 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 enticing. Giving up on the whole reincarnation and you know essentially because Ganon has given up on reincarnation, he's kind of locked the characters of Link and Zelda into that plan as well. Because he's given up on it, Zelda gets sealed away with him, and then Link gets put in that stasis chamber. So none of these characters fall into that cycle of death and rebirth that you know that has been previously established in other Zelda games. So his motivations in this game are much more menacing, but him as a character and him as a threat, I didn't ever really 
feel that he was a true threat in this game. Let's go ahead and move on to the ending of the game. You've beaten all the forms of Calamity Ganon, culminating in the battle where you ultimately seal Ganon using the, you know, the light arrows. And peace is restored to Hyrule, but you get this ending where at the very end, Zelda is asking Link, do you really remember me? And I think that was poignant. For her to ask Link if he actually does remember her, if you haven't completed the memory quest, then no, you don't have this like fully developed character of Zelda. But if you have completed it, yes, you do. And when she asked him that, there's almost like this, For at least for me, it was like this hint that maybe Zelda feels something more for Link than we've been led to believe up to the point. Like maybe there is love Link as a character and I thought that was it this is a great as an ending that could have stood on its own and I thought it was a very poignant ending but if you have completed all 13 memories you do end up with this extra little bit at the end of the credits um, where you know Varuta has stopped working and it's up to uh, Zelda and Link to go figure out what is wrong with it. And I have theories that that's where the DLC story content will pick up from. But that's for another day. It was this moment where you realize that Link's job is kind of done once Ganon is defeated. But for Zelda, her task is really just beginning. Like, it's her job to kind of rebuild, you know, the kingdom. To rebuild this world that, that's been destroyed by Calamity Ganon. And... You realize that's where Zelda is. Her importance is it, it like she carries more weight than any individual character in this game. And to see that she's taken on the task of rebuilding this world, that was that to me made for a really strong ending because you realize that her job isn't done. It's up to her to rebuild this world, and, and I thought that was great. And Link is just along for the ride now because his job is kind of done. He doesn't have to do anything. But you see that Zelda, her job is just beginning. And I thought that was that was the moment for me. I was like, this game did almost everything right. And this is the ending. This is the, the ending that I, I think the game really deserved. Was knowing that, it, that these characters continue on. And it's time for Hyrule to, to go through that rebirth process. I thought they did an amazing job of doing that. Um, anything else to add to how the game ends, my brother? Um, talk to Impa. <laughs> <laughs> because I went through and I got all the memories. And then I was like, yeah, I got all the memories. I'm going to beat the game now. And I went and beat the game. And I was like, I had to ask you. I was like, was there something... I didn't feel like I got a secret ending. But I got all the memories, and you're like, well, after you get the memories, you got to talk to Impa. And I was like, ah, damn it. Because, like, I just never went and talked. I didn't get the the little tunic that shows you the health for the enemies you fight. Because I didn't talk to Impa um, when you're at the Akala lab. And before um, the professor there lets you upgrade your runes, 
She's like, you need to go see Impa. And um, I actually didn't think that they would let me upgrade the runes without going to see Impa. But I didn't want to go all the way back to um, Kakariko Village. And I was like, and I talked to her again. And I was like, she's like, she's like, I can upgrade them, but you need to see Impa. And I was like, no. And I just kept talking to her more just out of stubbornness than anything. And she was like, she's like, and like the third or fourth time, she's like, Oh, well, I guess I can upgrade them without you going to see Impa. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, wow, okay. And so she upgraded my stuff, and I was like, sweet. And then I never had to go see Impa. And then at the end of the game, like, I didn't realize I had to go back to Impa again so that I could get the secret ending. And so I beat the game. And then you were like, bro, you need to stop avoiding Impa. And I'm like, because I was asking him, like, I didn't get the secret memory. I didn't get the stupid tunic that tells you how much health the enemies have. And you were like, I don't know why you don't like Impa, but you need to talk to her. And I was like, so that's my one, uh, my final comment for the game. Talk to Impa. It's like you, like how you couldn't feed your Pokemon and you just kept dropping food and they were angry at you. We're not going to go there. <laughs> You've had a rough year with video games. Your Pokemon don't love you, and Impa is not your friend. No, but um, let's go ahead and cap this episode off. Um, closing thoughts, man. For me, this is not my favorite Zelda game. It it's not. It's it's my probably it's my second favorite. I still have stronger feelings about the Wind Waker than I do this particular game. But this game. It it does it does everything right that it possibly can. Like, if I think about the complaints I have, yes, I said you know Ganon isn't truly a threat. Yeah, that he doesn't really need to be, you know. Even though I felt like there's no real sense of urgency to get to Ganon, the rest of the world is such a threat. Right down to the you know the weather elements. And, you know, just the, the, the enemy encounters that you'll have, that Ganon, he doesn't have to be the threat the rest of the world is. This game does an excellent job in telling a non-linear story using self-contained memories that do progress the story. I mean, they, they do it all in a way that is just fundamentally right and more open-world games should incorporate what they've seen here. They really should. It, I would be hard-pressed to see another open-world game ignore the advances uh, Breath of the Wild actually makes on this genre of games. Like, if you ignore it, you're not learning. Like, you, you're just not learning from the triumphs of this game. And I'm going to be hard-pressed to say that this game is clear contender for game of the year right now. There is some stiff competition with like games like Destiny, Horizon Zero Dawn, and you know there's more coming. Super Mario Odyssey might be a threat to Zelda's throne at you know game of the year. But if Zelda does win game of the year this year, it wouldn't be a surprise. It is to be expected because for all the waiting that Nintendo put us through. I ultimately think they delivered a finely tuned, 
well-crafted, strong story game in a world where they didn't need to add the story. Like, if the if the memory quest didn't exist, would this game still be good? Absolutely. If there were less shrines, would this game still be good? Absolutely. If there were less Korok seeds, would this game be good? Yes, it would be better if there were less Korok seeds. But ultimately, I think they, they did an amazing job of crafting this, this game, and it is going to be the standard for all open-world games, and it's going to definitely be the standard for all future Zelda games. If Nintendo is to stray away from this concept that they have created with this version of Zelda, then they're going backwards. And this is this is this is the new Zelda. Now there are some now I will say this there are some tropes that I hope come back. I want the Master Sword to play a more prominent role and I want the Hylian Shield to play a more prominent role and definitely bring back the the importance of the Triforce cuz this game ignores those things. But I think if you comply if you combine the the classic Zelda tropes with all the new elements that you added in this game, you will ultimately have the perfect Zelda game. Anything else to add, my brother? Um, it's one of the best games I've ever played, and it's a game that I will remember for a very long time. Um, so well done to Nintendo, because in a way they were kind of like Nintendo was kind of like Zelda. They had a lot of weight on their shoulders. They're like, you know, you need to save the company with this Switch launch. So please make Breath of the Wild the best Zelda game of all time and one of the greatest video games ever made. No pressure. And it's like they delivered and they unleashed their developing powers and delivered something special that you don't see very often in video games. You, you know, e you don't even see it, like, every year. Like, there's not, there are some years where, you know, you might get a lot of great games, but you don't, you don't even get one game a year sometimes that is on the level that Breath of the Wild is. Like, this is, like, one of those rare games that kind of, defines um, an era of gaming because it's like when you look back on the PlayStation era or, you know, you, everyone immediately thinks of, like, Final Fantasy VII or when you look back um, at the original Nintendo, people think of the original Super Mario Bros. game and, and there's, you know, like, when you think of PlayStation 2, a lot of, a lot of people go straight to um, the Grand Theft Auto series as their as their most memorable franchise. There are certain moments that define gaming history, and I think this is one of them. No, man, that that how do we say anything after that? That is that is one of the best thoughts thought processes. I've ever heard spoken on this podcast like that that is that is a hundred percent true I completely agree with that and guys that's where we're gonna wrap it up you already know you can hit us up on all of our 
social media links. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, we're here on YouTube. Um, you know you can go ahead and download new episodes, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, all the ways you guys can communicate with us. You know how to do it already. I want to thank you guys so much for waiting. We wait, We made you guys wait a long time before we talked spoilers on this episode, but I honestly think that it was a good thing that we waited this long because we've had time to reflect on this game. I mean, that makes, you know, reflection for this game is more important than, than it is for other games because I still think about different things about this game every day. So it is, I think we laid it out as best we could. Hope you enjoyed today's spoilercast. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoy the music, go ahead and download. You can go ahead and check it out on Game Chops. All right, guys? Thank you so much. Watch out for me behind us on the prowl. Stay fresh. Stay fresh. <laughs>